Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to read to you verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to do a basic introduction, and I'll explain what I mean by a basic introduction. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you that haven't been a part of me teaching a book of the Bible, and like, by the way, if you're interested, you go to my website, just click on recordings. Underneath that will list a bunch of different things. One of them will say Bible studies. If you go there, then another pull down happens and it lists all the books that I've taught over the last few years in this study. Romans and Revelation and 1 Peter and 2 Peter and Ephesians and Galatians. And But if you've ever been here with me when we've done a book, I'm not one of these ones that's going to spend too much time dealing with the who wrote it, when, how, purpose, all that. All that stuff we're going to touch on real quick, but there's so much material out there today for people that are curious to really dive into the debate on this book as where Paul was, where, which prison was he in when he wrote it, and these types of things. If you're interested in all that, there are commentaries, there are study Bibles, there's stuff that's available. I'm going to hit quickly what I believe the Bible teaches here on this, but my purpose is to teach this book. Not to teach about the book, but to teach the book. And so that's what we're going to do. So who wrote it? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? <laughs> Paul. Now you say, and Timothy. You're going to see in a little bit that Timothy wasn't a co-author. He was a co-sender. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. Where was it written from? Well, in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Look at Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by, by my imprisonment are much, and by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So where is Paul when he wrote this? He's in prison. There's debate amongst Christians as to which prison. Was it an imprisonment in Caesarea? Was it in Ephesus? Was it in Rome? Which one? I actually believe, as I've wrestled with this and studied, that I believe that this is Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. And actually during this imprisonment in Rome, he actually had a house that he rented and was able to write these letters. And people were able to come and visit him. You say, well, how do you know this? Go to Acts chapter 28. Put your bookmark in Philippians and go to Acts chapter 28. And look at verses 11 through 16. The end of the book of Acts, as you know, if you've been following along in the study of the book of Acts, at the end he's been arrested because of his faith. He appealed to Caesar, and because he did that, he's going to have to be taken to Rome. And as he's on his way, as you know, there was the shipwreck, and they, 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 they end up on the island of Malta, and the snake bites him, and he shakes it off into the fire. They think he's a god, and he explains who God really is. He heals the king on that little island and all that stuff. And we see in verse 11 in, uh, from uh, Acts 28, after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, day we came to Putoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when, and when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now jump to verses 30 and 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now this is an interesting imprisonment. And remember, he's been arrested because he was, in, he was in Jerusalem and he was arrested. He's about to be beaten and the Roman soldiers stopped everything and said, what's going on? And he ended up going to this trial and that little hearing and so on. And he was about to be set free, but he appealed to Caesar. And that's when they said, okay, you've done that. Now you have to go up before Caesar. And so he goes through this whole journey and he's going to end up in Rome. And now when he ends up in Rome, he's still a prisoner. But by this point, even the Romans are realizing, man, God's with this guy. <laughs> You know, and so his imprisonment wasn't a harsh one. Now, later on at the end of his life, when he wrote Second Timothy, he was in a horrible prison situation. But at this time, this is an easy, if you will, imprisonment. He's actually allowed to rent a house. He's, he's paying for everything on his own expense. There's a Roman soldier probably chained to him at all times, but he's allowed to see visitors. People come to him and so on. And as you're going to see in this letter here in Philippians, the church there in Philippi, they're supporting him financially to help him in his 
paying his bills and his house rental and all that kind of stuff. Because it's kind of hard to make a living if you're in jail, but you're also still renting a house. <laughs> you know, kind of a deal. But so when Paul wrote this letter, the book of Philippians, he was most likely in this first imprisonment in Rome during the situation that we're looking about. He also wrote Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon at the same time. And as you see here, most likely written about 61 A.D. in that area there. But if you do a little study, you'll find out that Paul wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon during this time that he's in prison. Now, interestingly enough, as you're about to see as we get into this study, and like I said, folks, this is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite books of the Bible. It's hard to say I like one more than another because it's all God's Word and it's all awesome. But in this book, if you don't know me, my motto in life has always been, if it ain't fun, don't do it. And if you got to do it, make it fun. Paul is positive, positive, positive. He's not negative. He's not looking at the downside. I mean, he talks about the fact that he doesn't know if he's going to live or he's going to die in this chapter here in chapter one. And he says, either way is good. He says, if, if I die, I get to go with me with Christ. If I live, that means I get more reward for labor for Christ. It's, either way is good with me. He talks about how people are out there to make him look bad and they're preaching the gospel to make him look bad. I don't care. He says, if I look bad, the gospel's being preached. All the way through, as you'll see, he says, rejoice, rejoice. The Lord is near. There's an attitude that just says, man, I'm good. And we're going to get into something tonight. And I'll be honest with you, I am chomping at the bit to get to it. And we will get there, I promise you, because there's no way I could wait till next week to get to what I want to talk about. But I'm just going to give you a little commercial right now. God has opened my eyes to something in the first chapter of Philippians that I've never really looked at in this way, and it has transformed how I look back at all of my Christian experience. It has not only transformed how I look back at my Christian experience, it has transformed how I look back at all the churches that I've been a part of in my entire life. It's changed everything. And folks, I can't wait to share it with you. But before we get there, we gotta get to that section. So let's kinda work our way through this. Who was it written to? Any idea who it was written to? The believers where? In Philippi, and also who else? It's interesting. It says also to the overseers and the deacons. Now, this is the only letter that Paul specifically in the greeting recognizes or acknowledges the leadership in the church there. Now, this is very important. I, you've heard me teach on this. I'm not going to beat it to death. But the Bible teaches that there should be leadership in the church. The Bible does not teach that everybody has an equal say in how things go. The Bible teaches that God has ordained some and they're going to be held accountable for that leadership. But we're to respect those who are over us in the Lord. We are to obey our leaders for this is right and don't make it hard for them. The Bible says that not all of us should be teachers, should seek to be teachers or leaders because we're going to be held in higher accountability. But the Bible teaches without question that if your church is going to be healthy, there needs to be an attitude that says these are the ones that God has called to lead us. Those are the ones that these are the ones that God has gifted to lead us. And we're going to let them lead according to what God has said. And if they're wrong, God will take care of that. But what we've done in our churches is we've turned everything into an American way where everybody gets an equal vote and the church runs the church. And we wonder why we're in the mess we're in. Here it says, he writes to the overseers, the bishops, those who have been given that spiritual authority in the church, and the deacons. And there's an office of deacon. I like to explain it to people in this way. God has shown us in our churches what the government is supposed to look like in our churches. He's shown us in our families. The Bible's very clear. We don't disagree on how God has designed authority in the family. We may not follow it. But we do know what the family model is. God has designed that there be a mom and a dad, and they're ultimately in charge, correct? Mom and dad hopefully don't say, hey, kids, whatever you want. When our kids were little and they hadn't learned this little model yet that mom and dad were in charge, of, ultimately they used to say things like this, let's take a vote when they didn't like the decisions we were making. Because <laughs> there were three of them and two of us. And I remember them saying, let's vote. And I said, hang on for a second, we can vote, but you got to understand something. According to God's plan, mom and dad's vote count for four apiece. <laughs> In a healthy family, mom and dad will say, where do you want to go on vacation? What would you like for dinner? But do the kids ultimately get to make the call? No, the elders do. Oh, within the family, if there's an issue amongst mom and dad, has God not said that there is a senior elder? Now, in a healthy family, dad is not always pulling out the I'm the head of the home card. 
Hopefully it never has to pull it out. But it's understood that there is authority even among the elders. Oh, by the way, as your kids get older, they become deacons. Oh, they're not elders yet. They're not parents yet. But you give them more responsibility to help with the physical needs of the family. Would you drive your brother to practice? Would you help with dinner? And as your kids get older and they start showing more maturity, they're still not mama. They're still not daddy, but they are given more responsibility. And the Bible says that they're supposed to be men. Why do we see it in Acts chapter 6? As the church grew and this issue arose, they did what we typically do and expected the pastors to take care of it. And they said it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God and prayer to wait on tables. You choose from among you men full of the spirit and wisdom. We will hand this responsibility over to them. Listen closely. The Bible does not say that those men were supposed to wait on the tables. They were just to make sure that it was taken care of. And we often have a tendency to try to dump everything on the pastor. And not only that, we try to dump everything on the deacons. No, in God's family, there are those who are ultimately responsible for how the direction of the family goes. They're the leaders, mom and dad. Within them, you get dad is the head of the home. But there's a wonderful bonding and a mixture there. The kids don't get to run the home. There's input. There's the, you, you see what, how they're feeling about things. You, you talk about it. But ultimately, the kids, even when our, we, we, our kids are 20, 18, and 15 now, and thank God we learned that to win that battle early when they were young, that ultimately mom and dad are in charge. And I tell parents, Becky and I stress to parents, when we teach people on this, we say, look, if there's two things we could say to you to help you raise your kids, one is you win that battle early, who's in charge? Because if you win it when they're young, you don't have to fight it when they're older. But you have to win that battle when they're very young. Mom and dad have been given the authority by God to make these calls. Now, the second thing we just say is this. <laughs> Turn the TV off and sit as a family around the table and talk. And you'll see God do a lot of neat, neat stuff. But I remember when our kids were little one time, one of them would have an issue with the decision we had made. And we would try to reason with them. And of course, sometimes you can't reason with them. And ultimately, we had to sit them down and say, who's the daddy? Who's the mama? Well, you are. Who made it that way? God did. Then what should be your response to listen to? They respected those who were over them because of their work, as it says in Hebrews. Sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. Respect those who are over you and hold them in high regard, not because they've earned your respect, but because of position God has given them. I don't want to go into it any more than that. But Paul says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with those who are the spiritual leaders, the parents, the overseers or the bishops, the pastors, whatever. You'll find in First Peter chapter five, that term elder, pastor, bishop, overseer, interchangeable. Those who have been given the spiritual authority to lead the congregation and those who are the kids who are a little bit more mature and they're taking care of physical needs, making sure they're taken care of and the deacons. Now, we're not going to deal with the grace unto you and peace from our God and Father, Lord Jesus. We've dealt with that with every letter Paul's written. If you don't know what that's talking about, go to the website and click on any other letter Paul wrote and it'll be taken care of. But who, what do we know about the people in Philippi? What do we really know about the people of Philippi? Anybody have any idea? They had been um, granted to become a province of Rome. So they, they were definitely a province of Rome. So they, um, they became a major trade route, and they, um, there was a little bit of pride and arrogance there. You have, boy, you're reading my notes. What are you doing up here? Mm -hmm. they, they, you're right, Sheila. That's exactly it. They were very proud of their Roman heritage and that they were a province of Rome. And actually... Well, let me show you real quickly. Go to Acts 16, verses 16 through 24. This will help you interpret and, and understand some of the stuff that Paul's dealing with in this letter to them. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 16 through 24. We're going to come back to this section a little bit later tonight as well. It says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. In this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. 
And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the, into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely uh, keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. What was their reaction? They said, we're Romans. They're talking about stuff that is against our Roman heritage. We're going to get there sometime. The Lord knows when. But in Philippians chapter 3, Paul takes the time in verses 20 and 21 to say, our citizenship is where? In heaven. Don't get so caught up in the fact that you're a Roman. Your citizenship now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is in heaven. Now, that's something for us, is it not? Aren't we not a little bit proud to be an American? We like to sing the song and beat our breast. I'm proud to be an American, or at least I know I'm free. Well, guess what? I'm not saying that song's wrong and we shouldn't have some national pride, but I'm going to tell you, if that national pride supersedes what the Word of God says, that's not good. Your citizenship, my citizenship is in heaven, and that's where our allegiance should be first. I pledge allegiance to the flag. I'm not, I, did, I did so today at a baseball game when there was no flag. It was a kind of ironic thing. They're having a district game, and they lined up all the teams on the baselines. You know, they announced them, and they all come out. And then they had, actually had a prayer, which was pretty cool. And then they had us put our, take our hats off, and there was no flag. Everybody was standing there going, oh, where are we looking? You know, finally we just looked to center field. That's where we're supposed to be, I guess. I don't know. But, it was just, but I, I, I sang the song. But my citizenship is really in heaven. My citizenship is in heaven. Now, from study, there may not have been enough Jews to permit a synagogue in this Roman colony of Philippi. And this why, it might, might explain why Paul uses no Old Testament quotes in this letter. He's not really talking to the Jews there as much as he's talking to the Gentiles that are there in this city who have become believers. I'm not saying there aren't Jews in this group, but most likely it was mostly Gentiles who were a part of this group and the believers there in Philippi. Now, the question is, why did Paul write the letter? And this is where most Bible study scholars will take all the time to lay out for you his purposes in writing the letter. I say this, why don't we just study the Bible and find out why he wrote it? So that's what we're going to do. Let's start diving in. Here it says, Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus. We see that Timothy is there with Paul, not as a co-author, like I said, but as a highly regarded co-sender. Go to chapter 2 and look at verses 19 through 24. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So here we see Paul is saying to them, hey, I'm hoping to send Timothy. He's with me right now, but I'm hoping to send him to you. Because if I'm not able to get out of this prison, if I send him, it's like I'm going there. He was a highly regarded co-worker and co-sender, if you will, of this letter. Go to Colossians. You're right there in Philippians. Turn over one book. Go to Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Oh, once again, remember we've already talked about it. While Paul's in this first imprisonment in Rome there, in that house that he's renting, he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so again, we see that Timothy was with him there. Go to Philemon, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Philemon, chapter 1. Actually, there's only one chapter, but you get the idea. I didn't test you tonight. Philemon, look at verses 1 through 3. It says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we see that Timothy was there with Paul during this time. We could get into a whole study on Timothy and how we, where, who he was and 
how he got saved and about his grandmother and his mother and their faith and how his father wasn't a believer, but his mother and his grandmother were and all this kind of stuff. But I want to get into the book of Philippians. So hopefully you, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, you can dig into that. I want us to really start looking at what Paul has to say here in this letter. He says, like I said, that this letter was from him and Timothy. He was the author, but Timothy was a co-sender to the saints there in Philippi. And like I said, the overseers or the elders and the deacons, the chosen servants. But look at how he describes them. Look at how he describes himself and Timothy as what? Bond servant. Look, does, some of your study Bibles might have a little note at the bottom. What's another word they use? Slaves. Actually, to be honest with you, most of the time that our New Testament Bibles use the word servant, it should be translated slave. Now, we, especially in America with our history, hear the word slave and we, we think bad. But actually, back in that day, slaves weren't considered like they are considered now. And to be a slave was not a horrible thing. And many people actually were glad to be slaves. They were treated well. They were considered just like the servants. Uh, sorry, just like the children uh, and, and all. They just didn't have some of the rights and all. Being a slave wasn't that big of a deal. But I don't think it's any accident that Paul uses this word. Because a lot of times he'll say, I'm an apostle. But this time he doesn't. He said, we're slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to write this down, put it down, mark it down, however you want, because this is going to be the foundation of where we're going to go in the rest of this study. I wrote it, to, I wrote it down this way. There is something here for all of us. As we look back at some of our times in churches, and actually, let me, let me just put it to you this way, and then I'll get to that. How we see ourselves as followers or slaves of Jesus Christ will determine how we respond to all the stuff that happens to us as followers or slaves of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you see yourself in the proper manner that you have become a slave of God. In other words, he is your owner he is your master. We know in Corinthians it says you've been bought with a price. You are not your own. Yet, how many of us Christians today talk about our rights? Or, I'm a child of God, and then we think that means we get to call the shots. No, Paul didn't use this word by accident. Where is he writing from? Was he upset about that fact? No, he saw it as this is the role that my father has for me. And he's not just my father, but my master has for me. And if you see yourself in this manner, it will affect how you deal with and how you respond to all the stuff that is going to happen to you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Actually, it says in the book of Timothy that if we actually seek to live for Christ, we will suffer. Well, we were, we were bought, bought price which slaves are bought that's correct so you are a slave you are yeah we're a slave we're not our own by the way i, I don't know if you all know this or not but when jesus purchased you with his blood and you agreed to that purchase you said yes in faith you may not realize it but at that moment whether you acknowledge it or not people always ask me um does do people have to acknowledge jesus as lord in order to be saved and i say silly question whether they acknowledge the fact that he's Lord or not makes no difference. He's Lord. He's Lord. Whether you acknowledge him as Lord or not, guess what? You're going to ultimately acknowledge him as Lord because not only will one day every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, his own servants, his own slaves are going to have to acknowledge that he is Lord. How did Paul, what did, what did Jesus say to Paul when Jesus showed up and on the road to Damascus and revealed himself to Paul. And I love how it's put in the King James. He said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, um, you know, back then, if you wanted to have an animal to move in a certain direction that it didn't want to go, you'd put a bit in its mouth or you would also have spurs, if you will. And you would probably like to whisper to your animal who is resisting you. It's hard to kick against the bridle or the goads. Or the spurs. You understand what I'm saying? 
You may fight me, but I'm going to win, is what God told Paul. You may resist me, but I'm going to win. And actually, as you look all the way through Scripture, you will see that he is gentle, he's loving, he's patient, yet at the same time, he never does say, oh, boys will be boys. He never does say, hey, well, you know, I just couldn't do anything with that person. If you are truly his, you have become a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And like, I, like how you put it, you have been bought with a price. You're not your own. Let me just let you in on something. He's in charge. Oh, he may give you a leash, but you're on a leash. And the Bible says that ultimately for Christians who walk in continual disobedience, to our Father, what ultimately is awaiting us? Not judgment in the sense of we lose our salvation. Discipline. Discipline. And sometimes it ends in physical death. Oh, you don't lose your salvation. But that's why later on, John in the book of John says this. He says, look, if someone is sick or if there's a need, pray and God will restore. But not the sins unto death. I'm not talking about those. There is a sin unto death. In other words, if God's determined that this sin is the one that's pushed you over the edge and you're coming home early, don't pray about that one because it ain't changing anything. And so the sooner we acknowledge, like I touched on earlier with the whole overseers and deacons thing, the sooner we acknowledge that God is in charge. He's the ultimate authority. The easier it will be for us to deal with what we go through the easier it will be for us to respond appropriately. But we all got this stinking problem called our flesh. And don't we, when things don't go like we would like them to go, don't we all, Jim Johnson included, have that attitude that says, why? Why? Well, if I were God, haven't we said those things? Sooner we acknowledge that we are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, he's a wonderful master. He's a loving master. And he's very generous to those who are his. Very generous to those who are his. But don't think for a second that you get to call the shots. Don't think for a second you get a vote. Because ultimately, he's in charge. And Paul could actually sit there in prison. We've already done our study of Ephesians where he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened, that you'd know the hope to which he's called you, his glorious inheritance in the saints. In other words, guys, I'm tasting something here in prison I want you all to taste. Lord, the Lord's doing something here that is so amazing. But Paul, you're in prison. Yeah, but that don't, that don't mean anything. This is the plan he's got for my life. And it's okay. It's good. Can you honestly say, this is the plan he has for my life, and I trust him? There's nothing wrong with asking him to remove the thorn, but if he chooses by his grace to say that it's sufficient, are you going to be able to respond and say, he knows what he's doing, and I'm his servant? Years ago, my great-grandmother, like I said, you've heard me talk about her before. She lived to be 102. When she was in her 80s, she was in a horrific car crash in Connecticut. There were four people in this car. Ice spun head on in the major highway collision and they're sitting there in the middle of this like four lane, eight lane highway in the middle of winter in Connecticut and they're, they're, in, they're in bad shape. I mean, both of her legs are broken. She's in her 80s and they can't get out of the car because it's crumpled. And they're just sitting there as cars whiz by. And they decide that what they're going to do is they're just going to grab hands and they're going to have a little prayer circle. When it gets to my great grandmother, this was her prayer. I am your child through Jesus Christ. Do with me as you wish. Now, little did she know, she still had quite a few more years to go. But she was, her attitude was, it's all good. God's got it. So then Paul says something else now in verse 3. And this is the part I've been... Can't wait to get to. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. This section here is where we're going to spend the rest of our time tonight, and most likely we won't finish it. But look at what Paul says in verse 3. And I, I'm a cynic. I've got to be honest with you. I, I question everything. And when Paul said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, my first thought was, Paul, everything you remember about them, you thank God for? Come on. Because I then wanted to go back and take a look at his experience in Philippi. And I want to do that. Let's, let's take a second here to go back. Go back to Acts 16 and look at verses 6 through 40. We've already gotten a glimpse of what happened and the fact that he cast the demon out of those girls and, and then uh, he was beaten and thrown in jail. And listen to Acts 16, though, verses 6 through 40. And you'll see how he ends up in Philippi and what happens. And we're going to start laying out something that I pray by the Spirit of God will transform how you look at your life as a Christian and look back at your church experience so far in, in your walk with Christ. In Acts 16, verses 6 and following, it says, they went, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, this is interesting. Here is Paul trying to go into all the world and preach the gospel, because Jesus had said to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Paul tries to go into Asia, and the Spirit says no. Why? We don't know why, do we? The answer is, don't know. God pretty much says, none of your business, just don't go there. But God... I mean, I'm one of the best preachers of the gospel. In Asia, there's a lot of Gentiles. This is a place that could sure use the gospel. Who's in charge? The answer was no. Folks, there is something about learning to listen to the Spirit of God and stop trying to live, as our, Christian, live our Christian lives by making good, wise decisions. Because you know what? The Bible says don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. He didn't know the why, but the Spirit would not let him go into Asia. He doesn't go sit home and say, well, I'll just wait until God gives me the GPS coordinates, because God had already said go. So he tries to go into Mysia, but the Spirit still wouldn't allow him. Do we know why? No, we don't know why. So passing by, verse 8, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's awesome. It's just a few verses. It reads real short. But if you do a little bit of study and look on a map from where he was to where he ends up, it's 400 miles. Walking. This didn't happen. It took a while. Could there not have been days when Paul was wondering why the Spirit said no to Asia and why the Spirit said no to Mysia? I guarantee you there were. But if we take him at his word, if he says he will direct our paths, he will direct our paths. Let's keep going with the last thing I heard. He said to go, and I'm going, and I'm listening, and I'm listening as I go. And then God says, I want you to go to Macedonia. But now what happens? I love this. Have you ever heard me teach on this? If you haven't, get my book, Principles of a God-Centered Church, chapter 8, or the 8th principle, deals with how to recognize where people are responding to the Spirit of God. Because all he knows is that he's being sent by God to Macedonia. Does he know where? No. What's he looking for? The same thing Jesus sent him out to do when he sent him out two by two. He said, when you go into a town, let your peace go out. If it's responded to, stay there. That means I'm at work. If not, move on. So he's now looking for where people are seeking God. Because in John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws them first. Romans chapter 3, verse 11, there's no one who seeks God, not, no one who understands. So if we're going to go looking for where God's at work, we don't go out there and try to start the work. We go and see where our Father's already working 
And we then join with him where he is. Paul doesn't know anything except the Spirit of God has said, let's go to Macedonia. So they go to Macedonia. And now when they, so the setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was wor a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, this is an interesting thing here. They go looking for where people might be seeking God. They, they, back then, there were places of prayer down by watersides. So they went there and they found some women and they shared the gospel with them. And the first convert in Europe is who? A woman. Wait a minute. I thought he saw a man of Macedonia saying, come preach the gospel to us. See, there's, there's too often where we try to figure everything out. God will send us in directions and you have to just listen to him and do what he says and don't try to figure him out as to why he's doing what he's doing or why he said to do what he said to do. And what would have been messed up if Paul had said, sorry, Lydia, I saw a man in my dream. <laughs> and on top of that, I don't see anywhere in the scriptures where Paul ever met this man. I'm not saying he didn't, but we see nowhere recorded that he ever saw this man that he saw in his dream. But he was faithful to follow the direction and the leading of the Lord and the first convert was a woman named Lydia, and the church starts in her house. That's pretty cool. You're going to see some more as Paul describes them, not literally in the sense of saying her name, but in the book of Philippi, he mentions them in a little bit. As you know, in verses 16 through 24, as they were going out to the place of prayer, they were met by a slave girl, and he just cast the demon out. We already saw what happens. He gets beaten up. He's thrown in the inner cell. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were grumbling and complaining. It doesn't say that, does it? They were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Folks, they're sitting there bleeding. Why had they been be beaten? For preaching the gospel. And not only for that, for casting the demon out of these girls. We, exactly, though you slay the L, I trust you. What do we do? God, I did it right. God, I did what you told me to do. But we don't, we have to be reminded of that. That's why daily we have to lay ourselves on the altar. We need to renew our minds that it's about him and it's not about us. We've been bought with a price and I trust him. And whatever he says to do, I'm going to listen to his spirit's leading and I'm going to go there. I'm not going to try to figure out the why. I'm just going to do what he says. And in time, if I am blessed, I'll see the why, which he do, we do in this story. But at the time, they didn't know the why. They just knew this is what God had said. And like I told you, your attitude of, as being a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ will change how you respond to everything. Because you know he's able to do something. And if he chooses not to, what did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say? When the king said, is, is your God able to rescue you from this fire? Yes, he is able. Whether he will or not, we do not know. But it don't change squat. That's exactly what it said. <laughs> As they were at midnight, they were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Folks, I don't know how to say it any more than this. If you're in the middle of something, try worshiping instead of complaining. Amen. Just try it. Just try praising Him in the midst of what it is, and you watch what God does to the supernatural power to start bringing peace in the midst of whatever is going on. Prisoners were listening and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. That means all the prisoners hadn't moved. Now, first of all, let me just say this. This proves that Paul was not sitting in prison praying, God, get me out of here. Because if you had been praying, God, get me out of here, and the doors flew open and the chains fell off, you would have said, 
Hallelujah, my prayers have been answered. But he didn't move. We're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't even preach. Oh, he'd been preaching. He did by his actions. He did by his actions. And as he worshiped God, man, spirit of God's able. Folks, let me just tell you, too many of us have fallen prey to this lie of Satan that we have to be gifted at communicating the word of God or else someone, Jim, you would do a better job than me because you're, you're gifted. No, listen, listen, listen. The greatest revival in a whole world, as recorded in the Bible, happened in Nineveh, where every single person in the whole town repented. The preacher didn't want them to repent. He didn't even want to be there. His sermon was probably 40 days from the new parish, and then that is it. He didn't even want them to listen. He wasn't prayed up. He hadn't fasted. He actually hoped they wouldn't listen to what he said, and he might have grumbled it. I think he fasted for three days. Yeah. <laughs> for three days, he had no choice but fasting. That's for sure in the middle of that belly. Listen to what I'm saying to you, though. This, is, this salvation thing is the work of God. Just be faithful. You don't know how God's going to use you. But the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all were in his house. And he took them in the same hour that night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now try to throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. They moved on to the next place. Now stick with me. There's something here back in Philippians when Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He says, I thank you for your partnership in the gospel, not only then, but also now. It has been a little while since Paul had seen these people that he was writing to, right? A lot's gone on in his life. Chipwrecks, snake bites. All sorts of stuff. Another beating that was about to happen and he quickly pulled out his Roman citizen card because God lit him in that situation. There's been a lot gone on. But these people in that church there in Philippi, the believers there in Philippi, they had bonded with Paul. And they were now not only believers in, in the gospel and partners in grace at that time, they were also now sending funds to help support him. As we look back at some of our times in churches, do we remember the hard times? Or do we remember all the great things that God did do in the midst of the struggles? You see, in the life that I've had as a traveling preacher and as a pastor, I've, I've been involved in churches all around the country. I grew up in a little community church in Milton, New Hampshire. When we moved to Florida in 1984, we joined First Baptist Palm Bay, and we were there for a couple of years. And then God moved us to another church in Palm Bay, and we were at Lockmar Baptist for a few years. And I actually was youth pastor there for a summer, and then, uh, then I was youth pastor the next summer at First Baptist in the Atlantic. And then the next summer after that, I was back at Lockmar, and then God moved us to New Orleans, and I was in seminary, and I went on staff at a church and was there for almost seven years in New Orleans at Williams Boulevard Baptist Church in New Orleans. And then God called me to be a pastor now, not a youth pastor or associate pastor, but senior pastor. And I was the privilege of pastoring a church in Chicago. And God did some amazing things in that church. And then he let, moved me from there to First Baptist in the Atlantic and had the privilege of doing uh, ministry together with other believers there in the Atlantic. And now for the last nine years, I've been traveling the country and teaching and preaching the word of God. And I wish I could tell you that everything that happened was good. But Paul says, when I think of you all and your partnership with me in the gospel, not only then, but also now, every memory's good. I said, Lord, what's he talking about? 
I mean, because I got a lot of memories. I wish I could tell you they're all good. And he said, Jim, Paul is focusing on what I did, not on what Satan did. And this is where it all of a sudden opened up, and that's how it's changed how I look at my church life now. You know what God did in all those places? He has blessed me with forever friends through Christ. When I think back about my time at Lockmar, and I think back in my time at First Palm Bay or Williams Boulevard or Indy Atlantic or Brainerd Avenue, you know what I start to think of? And I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm going to put you on the spot. I think of Paul and Pat Julek. How God knit us together back in 88 when I was youth pastor just for a summer. And Dan, their son, and I became tight. Ended up living in our home when, he, when we were in Chicago. Lived in the basement of our house. And our kids still to this day call him Nanny Danny. Because <laughs> he helped raise them. Whenever the phone upstairs was for him, we would do shave and a haircut, two-bit dance on the floor in the kitchen, and he knew that the phone was for him, and he would come up from his basement hole and answer the phone. I look around this room, and I see people that that's what I remember now. I don't worry about all oh, the church grew or all oh, the church split or all this stuff, and I want to encourage you in the same way. Paul is sitting in prison, and these people from Philippi are still a part of his ministry. Oh, but they're not going to the same church anymore. Who cares? Who cares? It's not about that. And many of us, we're all from different churches that come to this study. I can promise you, as you look back, you probably, there's very few in this room who have been at the same church their whole life. As you look back, God has moved you sometimes. And as you look back, unfortunately, many times we focus more on the negatives that have happened in those places. And I can promise you, Satan won some battles. But I want to encourage you to think back about those relationships that have been bonded through Christ that are going to be your forever friends for eternity. By the way, when we stand in heaven, we're not going to talk about how big our churches were. We're going to be talking about Jesus and what he's done in our relationships. Oh, by the way, tomorrow night, I, I'm going to be in Orlando. You know why? Because Frank and Mary Beth Brasino are going to be in Orlando, and they live in New Orleans, but God bonded us together when we were there in the church in New Orleans, and they're part of our small group Bible study, and they have been fast friends forever. And anytime anywhere near New Orleans, I call up and say, I'm sleeping at your house tonight. <laughs> I don't ask. Becky will tell you. We're, she and I were just there with four other people from First Baptist Merritt Island who were doing a pre-trip for a mission trip, and we're doing some study and I said, I'll make a phone call and I'll find a place for us to sleep. I called Frank and said, there's six people that are sleeping at your house tonight and four of them you don't know. <laughs> and they said, come on. I could talk about the Overtons, the Hashes. Ken Milotovic watching me swim in the river in my underwear because I forgot a bathing suit. I could just go on and on. Folks, let me just tell you, that's what we're to remember as we look back as to what God has done. Stop focusing on the blow-ups or the shrinking or the split or the things that Satan did. He says, I think about you and all my memories are good. Because he's focusing on what God did that has continued. Let me encourage you in this way, in whatever church you're in, whatever church God wants you to be in at this time, don't worry about how the church is doing. Build relationships. Get to know each other. I thank God for some of you that have still reached out to my dad through his stroke. I love how the Ellis's continue to reach out to him and love him. He was in their small group. They were in his. Oh, they don't even go to the same church anymore. But they're still tight. And they still visit. Folks, this is what God has done. He's saying, Jim, quit looking back at what you wished had happened and think about the relationships that have been bonded. And you know who God's bringing to your mind now. Those people, as this one buddy of mine, Joe Langford, puts, he says, I've already met my pallbearers. <laughs> I may be at a new church now, he says, but all my pallbearers are at First Baptist in the Atlantic, or were at the time, where a lot of us have moved to other places. 
Do not focus on what Satan has done, but focus on what God has done. Listen to how he says it again. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. These are the people that are still your close friends, even though you're not even in the same place anymore. You're in a different part of the country, maybe a different part of the world. But because of Jesus Christ and what he was doing then and is still doing now. By the way, that's one of the ways you're going to find out who your friends really are when you change churches. I, I literally want to spend the rest of my time just looking at the faces here and just telling you how each of you means something to me. Those of us who have bonded in this way. My prayer is, is that you have those kind of relationships as well. I don't care what church you're a member of. I want to know, have you bonded through Christ with people in whatever congregation you're in right now? Because it's part of how God does things for times and seasons. He moves us for his purposes. Don't worry about the church. God said he will build his church. He'll take care of that. Pray for those who are in leadership and let them lead. And you get tight with other people. You partner together for the kingdom. And my prayer is that if it's real, it'll continue even if you go somewhere else. Look at verse 6. This is why Paul can be sure that God will finish what he started. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How can he be sure? Because he's focusing on what God started. And he knows it's real because it's continued on. Didn't just happen while we were there together. It's continued on after that. That's real. And if God started it, you've already heard me teach on this. The Bible's very clear that he will finish it. If you've truly been born again and he's given you his spirit, he will finish what he started. Don't let anybody tell you you can lose your salvation. It's not possible. If you got it, it's yours. Let me just show you two quick scriptures that you might not have seen along this line. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. He says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a what? As a guarantee. It's God who establishes us in Christ. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly tent, our earthly home is destroyed. He's talking about our physical bodies. Some of you have pup tents. I have a double wide. <laughs> that laughter started off feeling pretty good, then moved into feeling hurt. But uh, we... We, exactly. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we'd be unclothed, but that we'd rather be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has presented, prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. What's He prepared us for? He's prepared us for eternity. Amen. Thank the Lord one day we'll get out of these bodies. Right, Fred? Be praying for Fred, as you know. He's hanging on for some reason. Probably because he knows we'd miss him too much if he left. But we're glad you're here, my friend. We're glad you're here. We've been praying for you. We're glad you're still with us. But we also know that he who began a good work in you is going to finish it, and he has... We know you're his, and one day we're all going to be at that place where we don't have to say goodbye anymore. But we're glad you're here, and we love you. Amen. Folks, I love the fact that you guys love on each other in this Bible study. I love the fact that when it's all over, you just start hanging out. You come ahead of time, and you share, and you talk, and you get in your groups. I used to be one of those ones that said, well, we shouldn't have clicks. Now I'm all for clicks. <laughs> I, I, I'm serious. When we stop looking at things the way that makes sense to it, you know what? There's some people that are only going to be liked by some people. Let's just be honest. 
We're all quirky in one way or another, and we're all and God's gonna. You know what? When God gives you people that like you, stick with them. <laughs> Maybe all you get. Exactly, it might be all you get. And on top of that, I've always we've always had this mentality that says that everybody in the church, that we have this mentality. That everybody's supposed to be ever liking everybody the same. It ain't gonna be that way. But you ever notice that when Paul wrote his letters, he would cert, great give greetings to certain people. Say hi to so-and-so, and so-and-so says their greetings or whatever. There's going to be people you know more intimately than others. That's okay. That's actually some of the greatest gifts God's going to give us. Oh, Jesus did the same thing. He did the same thing. I grew up in the era where they told my dad, because he was a pastor, that a pastor is not allowed to have any close personal friends because he's supposed to appear to be there equally for everyone. Oh, by the way, when you say that your pastor is supposed to know everybody in the church, you have just said how big your church is going to get. Because it's only physically possible for one person to know only so many people. It's your best maybe 100, 150. And if you expect your pastor to know everybody equally, you've already just said, we want to get this big. Oh, just let him be the man God called him to be. Let him use the gifts that God's given him and stop expecting him to be the person he's not. You let God raise up in your church overseers, plural. Some are preachers, some are teachers, some are evangelists, some are shepherds. And you'll find that actually this Christian life is fun when I stop worrying about what everybody else is supposed to be doing. And I get plugged in with the people God has made like me. Not like me, but ones that like me. <laughs> and this role, this life is fun. We'll come back to the rest of this next week, but let me just wrap up with this. I told you before we started recording that I had the privilege of speaking at this uh, associational meeting over on the west coast of Florida. And the two messages that God had me bring were on rest. And I took him to Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus says, Come unto me, you are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. What's the very next thing Jesus says? Take my yoke. Now, hang on for a second. Jesus offers us rest. Our brains think hammock. Right? And Jesus offers us a yoke, which means work. Listen closely to what I'm saying. Jesus has already said, in this world, you will have trouble, right? So you're going to have trouble. Okay, but Lord, I would like to have a day with no trouble, at least. Right? I'd like a rest. No, no, no. What did he say in Matthew chapter 6? Don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You're going to have trouble of some sort every day. So when you think rest means I get a break from stuff, you already have the wrong definition of rest. Listen closely. Rest is tied to the yoke that Jesus has for you. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Do not let the pastor, do not let the nominating committee, do not let the personnel committee determine your yoke. You wear the yoke Jesus has for you, and you will find rest for your souls. And that's why I love being just a preacher. Because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jim, I couldn't live your schedule. You're not supposed to. I'm not tired. And even when I got home, my wife says, you haven't been here forever. Paint the house. <laughs> Actually, we got a birthday party for my daughter coming up, and she's graduating at the same time, and she's been at this big party that she wants, and all of her friends are coming over, I don't know, 30 to 50 folks, and my wife said, now's the time to get the place fixed up. And so she said, Jim, and for the last three days, I have been pressure washing, painting, and all this stuff. And I turned to my daughter, Elise, and I said, your mother's using you. <laughs> and she said, yes, I am. And get back to work. But you know what? His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You find what it is he's called you to do. You get plugged in with the people that he's told you to plug in with. And you watch how much fun it is to be a Christian. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I again thank you for this chance to come and to study your word. And I look forward to coming again next week as we continue on with the fact that you then challenge these people to love one another more and more. And help us to really grasp what that means. But Lord, for tonight... May you begin to bring healing in our minds and our hearts as we look back over our Christian experience and our times in churches. And may we not focus on the things Satan did, but may we focus on all that you did, and especially 
those relationships, those interpersonal relationships that have been bonded over the years, even though we're not even at the same churches anymore. Father, thank you for these people. Maybe you want us to send them a note on email or a letter or a phone call or a text or whatever. But Lord, I know that you have been overwhelming my heart with the desire to contact so many people and just tell them how special they are. And Lord, I see that's what Paul was doing as he sat in prison. He was saying, I just can't help but thank God for you. And what God did back then and has continued to this day, I thank you that, Lord, as you released Paul from prison and the magistrates came and apologized, before he left town, Paul went to see Lydia. I know that they were tight all the way until they got to spend eternity together. Lord, thank you for those people you've blessed us with in relationships like that today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming.